Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. In Catherine Cole's new poetry collection, Solve for X, she meditates on an imaginary sister, impositions of the body on the mind, and the human mess that remains despite death or disaster. In this collection, she shows her ease with the uncertain X, while breaking down contrary ideas and reassembling them, harmoniously redesigned. The rigidity of knowledge yields to the beauty of the search, both captivating and mysterious. Catherine Coles is author of two novels, eight collections of poems, the essay collection, The Stranger I Become, and the memoir, Look Both Ways. The recipient of grants from NEA, the NEH, and the Guggenheim Foundation. She served as Poet Laureate of Utah and was inaugural director of the Poetry Foundation's Harriet Monroe uh, Poetry Institute. She's a distinguished professor of English at University of Utah. Catherine Coles, pleasure to welcome you back to Access Utah. Thank you. Thank you. Good morning, Tom. Good morning. Uh, so this uh, this collection is in the form of um, an abecedarium, uh, in other words, you know, arranged by alphabet. Did, it, did that happen on purpose or afterwards? Um, it happened afterwards when I was trying to put the poems together, and I realized that I had everything uh, except an X poem. So when I was organizing them, I just started by putting them in alf- alphabetical order um, so I would know where they were, and then... Uh, realized I had everything but an X poem, and I decided that Solve for X itself could stand as an X poem if I put Solve for in parentheses. And then I actually wrote an additional X poem uh, on top of that. My editor, when we were talking about the book, uh, said, well, uh, are you sure that this needs to be the order? Did you really think about this order? And I said, well, can you think of a better one? (laughs) <laughs> she couldn't, so we we went ahead with this. <laughs> You've always always been interested in you know science and nature it, it, intersections between art and science. Uh, is that mm-hmm. where solve for X comes from? Uh, partly, you know, my father, um, who passed away just a couple of years ago, was a mathematician, um, quite a distinguished one, as a matter of fact. And uh, so math and mathematics as a language was always a part of my childhood growing up and conversations in my in my household. And so um, the X has always been a kind of a companion, although I haven't addressed it directly until this point. So math as a language. So you come out of math as a language into, you know, obviously using language in poetry, um, and I think, you know, people who know math know, know what you're talking about there. Math is a language, right? Yeah, I think that's right. I'm, I'm actually teaching a course I'd love to teach this semester to undergraduates called How to Read a Poem. And I, I have a, a freshman math major in that class, and she's tickled almost every minute of the day to think about poetry next to mathematics and the ways in which they operate similarly and the ways in which they offer, operate quite differently. It, it, or, or is there an example come to mind of that? That's interesting. Um, well, here I'll tell you a story about my father. Um, we were on, when I was uh, reading for my Ph.D. exams, they met up with me on a Greek island. I was sort of knocking around with my backpack on the ferries, and I was uh, hauling Homer's Odyssey with me, which I had to read for my list, and uh, he gestured to it on a beach one day, and he said, um, so how do you know that that's actually good? And I looked at him, and I said, well, how do you know that a theorem is true? 
And he cracked his little wry smile at me and said, because it's beautiful. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's a nice, that's a nice moment with your father and, and very true, right? Yeah. 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 Uh, so you teach, I think I do this, but I, I'd forgotten. You teach a class called, called how to read a poem. Yes. Uh, I, I pioneered this class. from Paisley Brechtal and others have also taught it, but it's one of my favorite classes to teach. Uh, give me a little sample. How, how <laughs> it's a whole class. How, how do I read a poem? Um, well, starting with the title, one word at a time, uh, is one answer, <laughs> and another answer, and the the one that comes up probably in every class period is, well, it's complicated, um, and uh, another answer that comes up is uh, just relax. <laughs> yeah, I like that one. Just relax. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Well, let's well, let's just relax and have you read a, a, a poem from your. Do you have one you'd like to start out with from the from this collection, Solve for X? Um, I wonder whether um, you'd be interested in hearing Jetson. Oh, that'd be uh, that'd be great. I like that one. Yes. Okay, great. So this is a three part poem, and it in, it's titled Jetson, but it also includes the other kinds of detritus, right, that we find in oceans and other bodies uh, of water. So I will uh, go ahead and and read it with the numbers so that you know where you are. Jetsam, one. What we owned before we tossed it. What lightens the vessel, sailing where we wish, remaining, blithe and going. Being what we let go on purpose now that it no longer serves our needs. Unlike Lagan, Jetsam also floats, floating the point. If we choose not to keep it, why not send it wherever and save ourselves? Watch the horizon, why not, wafting toward it, going over there. Two, not flotsam then, not what sinks then rises again to haunt us, not what we lose by capsize, being wreckage. Don't call it misadventure to plunge deep into dark sounding, then release goodies in pieces back to the surface, keeping what isn't buoyant enough to float. Not a body then, which will. Thinking glissers, thinking hold. Three, not derelict either, as in sunk just gone, or beyond recovery, as in my voice, its song. All that's left, I warble. The waters sing, so long, so long. That's uh, the poem uh, Jetsam from uh, Catherine Cole's uh, Sulphur X uh, poems. Uh, and I think th- this brings in precision, right? Uh, it, just mm-hmm. one of the one of the factors in in this this poem. We we say the phrase flotsam and jetsam, right? There. Yeah, we, and mostly we don't know the difference. Yeah, right. One yeah. one from the other, and um, so this is just uh, a poem like this arises on any given morning when I think. I need to remind myself the difference between flotsam and jetsam and then discover, oh, there's also Leiden and derelict and all of these things that I've completely forgotten about because I rely on this, um, on the casual use of this phrase. And if we want to go back to how to read a poem, right, one of the things to remember is that essential to style is precision. 
in poetry that nothing happens by accident mm. in a poem. One of your themes, I think, consistent themes is is time, right? Um, in, mm-hmm. in permanence. I wonder if you could uh, mm-hmm. read uh, "If Now All This Happens" eighty milliseconds ago, page, uh, page twenty-seven. The great thing about uh, alphabetical is that I can find these really easily. Oh, oh, that's right. I even forgot about that. Yes, it's it's in the yeah. eyes. Yes. Um, yeah. All right. If now always happens eighty milliseconds ago. The future becomes my mistake. I'm never on time for anything, but now I have an excuse, which I also have no use for, given my oddly on-time reputation. Maybe everyone follows the clock I'm on, tick and talk, little deaths we all work hard ignoring. Maybe I wish we all had more sense, if not better. (laughs) If now this happens 80 milliseconds ago, um, I wonder, uh, this might be a good time to bring this in. I was fascinated by a TED Talk you gave. This is, I oh, think, de- December of last year, that. right? Yes. <laughs> this yep. is this is TEDx Park City Women. Um, and uh, your talk, in fact, I want to play just a little bit from the beginning and talk a little bit about this. Uh, your Your title of your talk was A Poet's Guide to Time Management, which is which is pretty intriguing. Um, I pro- I probably should have called it a poet's guide to time mismanagement. Yeah. That's, <laughs> that's right. Yeah, you talk about you know time and relationship of poetry to time. Um, so let's just play a little bit of the beginning here, and I want to talk about this. This was fascinating to me, and you get into you know the nature of poetry and what poetry does for us. Uh, so this is just uh, the beginning minute or two from uh, Catherine Cole's TED Talk. Uh, I think this was December of last year. In the plot device, writers of narrative call the ticking clock. The protagonist has a limited time to solve a problem. You've seen this literalized in movie after movie, the bomb, the clock, in an old film actually ticking, or these days digital, silently running down the seconds by the hundreds. The protagonist moves wire clippers between the blue wire and the red and the blue. Then at last, if you're like me, you're muttering at the screen by now, choosing correctly which to clip. Or for comedy and failure, think Lucy and Ethel at the chocolate factory. The conveyor belt moving faster and faster. They can keep up by doing only one thing and their faces when the boss appears are smeared with chocolate. Most anxiety provoking is the cliffhanger, which ends a ticking down chapter or episode with the fate of everything in question. What will happen next? Will it happen soon enough? Isn't that just life waiting for the answer? Hence, binge watching or reading too late into the night. Just one more episode, another short chapter, all will be revealed and satisfied. We can go to bed. As a reader and a viewer, I'm a sucker for such manipulations, but as a writer, I've never really mastered any of them. I'm too easily distracted by things like words, like how memory deceives us over and over, 
like the complexities of motivation. This may be why an editor once said about one of my novels, my, your characters certainly have rich inner lives. So I'll just uh, I'll just go there. I'd <laughs> love love for everybody to to listen to this and you, or view it. You can go. Uh, I just googled. Um, well, I just googled uh, Catherine Coles and it came up. But uh, it's uh, TEDx Park City Women, and that'll come up for you. Um, <laughs> I love that the editor said your characters have rich inner lives, and it was not a compliment. It was not this this editor did not publish that novel. Somebody else. Did but uh, I don't think it's an especially good novel for exactly the reasons I was talking about. <laughs> so you, I, I love these phrases. You you uh, say that uh, you know you're not good at that. That the cliffhanger because you're distracted by words and how memory constantly mm-hmm. deceives us, and the complexities of motivation. Um, in other words, I guess poetry. I, I think I'm distracted by poetry. I'm, I'm always going down um, one rabbit hole of language or another. And I really um, am, am so easily uh, fixed in place by the operations of language. And that's what poetry really, really does is it retards us. It asks us to linger um, for a long while in what looks like a small space, but once you're inside it, it keeps expanding and keeps resonating. Um, and you need to take the time. This is the other thing about how to read a poem, right? Is that you need to be willing to take the time, not just to read, but to be retarded in your reading, to go back, to move forward, to get to the end, and then go back to the beginning instead of clicking the next episode, right? Yeah, that's right, yeah. And you say in uh, in poetry we're in lyric time, you know, different than narrative time. That's right. So the way that I think of it um, is that if narrative time is not only this, then this, but actually also this, then therefore this, right, is the time of, of um, on-moving and consequence, um, then lyric time is the time that involves this and, this and, this and, this. And as it keeps folding anew this in, it really is a sort of folding or kneading kind of motion. It keeps returning us from the second this back to the third, the first this, so that, and then from the third this back through the second to the first this, so that we're... Um, experiencing the accumulations and resonances that occur inside this small body of the poem. You give a couple of examples. You talk about rhyme. You, you, you say, well, let, let's think about my family and anomaly. <laughs> you know, just a very, very, right. very simple example, but, but uh, you know, talk about what that does to a, a reader or listener. So it it actually took me a while um, in using rhyme all the time, or at least very frequently, before I began to understand rhyme not only as a kind of sonic device that chimes, right? So Anomaly sends you back to my family because you hear that um, resonance and you go back and check, right? Uh, You want to go back and look at that. But I began to think of it also as a way of making a metaphor in a poem. And a metaphor is how we turn one thing into another. And, you know, there's some 
really obvious examples, like the moon was a ghostly galleon, and and the ghostly galleon makes you think about the moon again. But in rhyme, really, what you're doing is you're doing is you're creating a metaphor by changing one word into another, not by saying this is this, but by just replacing one thing with another. But in that act of substitution, the poem asks you not only to hear what's happening, but also maybe to think about what happens when you replace the word family with the word anomaly in such a, an obvious way. Um, and in this talk, you, you uh, use an example from a Dickinson poem um, mm-hmm. about, a, about uh, you know, bees, I think, a bee, right? And right. being white as a prairie. Um, do, you, yeah. do you want me to say the poem? It's yeah, one I'd of my lo- favorites. Yes, yes, I'd love it. Okay. Dickinson says, to make a prairie, it takes a clover and one bee. One clover and a bee and reverie. The reverie alone will do, as bees are few. And, of course, she's drawing attention to that, those articles, a and the, and what is the difference between them? One being, a being about general categories and the being quite specific, right? It has to be this one, um, kind of moving back and forth between one and another in a kind of futile way because um, we know scientifically that the poem uh, is an inaccurate uh, description of how to make a prairie. It doesn't work uh, either way that she's talking about. Uh, And then she gets down to that word, which is a sonic replacement for prairie, and also for B, reverie, and she moves us entirely out of the uh, the realm of science and instruction and into the advice, which is, ah, just lie in the grass and enjoy the bees. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, you uh, you ask in your talk, what if we didn't live in narrative? We, do, we obviously do live in narrative most of the time. Yeah. What if we didn't live in narrative? What if time was a part of us? I think we can experience that a bit right. in poetry, I guess. Yeah, I mean, wouldn't wouldn't that be nice? And I think I think that biologically, probably time is a part of us. It's one of the consequences of modernity uh, and of the fact that we live by clocks, which are our invention, instead of by the sun and moon and stars, which are nature's invention, and the seasons also nature's invention. It's that clock. Um, that fixes us in the human construction of time uh, and pulls us out of that space of um, simply experiencing time as the seasons present them to us, present it to us. You quote Auden, poetry makes nothing happen. (laughs) It's it's not narrative, right? (laughs) Right, it's not narrative. And, um, I mean, I, I think that's in some... In some way, I would say true. a truer word was never said. And then in other ways, I actually see the consequences of poetry uh, in my life all the time. They're just not the kinds of consequences that we that make the front page of the New York Times, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. W- what are some of those consequences? Well, I think that they do, uh, that a poem can provide this experiential space. You know, my old... Um, Professor Mark Strand 
once said that poetry is that thing that tells you in so many words exactly where you are. And if you want to think about time and temporality, um, the poem tells you exactly where you are, no matter who you are, where you are, or when you are. The poem itself is a time traveler. And if we want to go back to Auden and, and think about his famous poem, September 1st, 1939, and the way in which that poem, which was written uh, at the beginning of World War II, uh, came back and was all present immediately following September 11th uh, and has and came back, uh, has come back again in times of trouble and war. This is a poem that that repeatedly tells us exactly where we are across history. Mm. Uh, you have another quotation in your talk, William Carlos Williams. Uh, you can't get the news from poetry, I guess similar to their, you know, poetry is not narrative. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And one of the, again, going back to that Auden poem, the news of his day was that news of the um, Nazi invasion of Poland, which is what happened on that day. Um, and yet the poem continues to be relevant um, in situation after situation, regardless of what specific headline it is that is drawing us to our need for poetry and our need to sit still exactly where we are for a moment. Just a couple of great quotes from this uh, TED Talk, and we'll move on, we'll move back to book. But um, you say all a poem wants is its unequal measure of attention. Right. Disproportionate, right? Yeah. Um, almost all the poems in, in this little book can be read in a minute or less, but I'm kind of hoping that people might give each one a little more time than that. And you say there are no poetry emergencies. I, I do say that. Um, one of my former students just quoted that back to me on Facebook, uh, as a matter <laughs> of fact. Um, and, you know, that has to do with the way that I feel fortunate every single day as I'm failing at my art, uh, which is mostly what we do all the time, that uh, no, nobody is harmed by my failures. And it's even possible that somebody might be helped uh, by by every failed poem, right, that's out there in the world. But certainly nobody is hurt by it. Um, my husband, who's uh, a scientist, um, has all kinds of critical deadlines for his research, for his paper. He has gr papers, he has granting agencies, he has conferences where he has to deliver a paper to an abstract that he wrote a year ago, um, et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, Nobody ever uh, was harmed because I didn't, didn't finish a poem, because I didn't write a specific poem at a specific time. Um, my books get put together when I have a sufficient number of the right poems for a book. When I'm asked to give a reading, I choose from among the poems that I have, not uh, from among the poems that I wrote for that deadline. So... Uh, it, even the occupation of being a poet and of writing poetry occupies a different kind of temporality than that of uh, a banker or a scientist um, or a waitress, which I've done, right? And everything happens by the clock mm -hmm. in that particular profession. And of course, there are stresses uh, associated with that. Um, you know, I can mm -hmm. 
it can uh, you know seem like hamsters on a wheel kind of a thing how do we how do we how do we carve out more lyric time um i i think that one thing that we can do is learn to ask ourselves in a given day what actually is an emergency right as opposed to something else that might be less important uh, I don't know about you, but um, in my my beloved bureaucracy here at the University of Utah, I am constantly being asked to do things that, um, say, somebody else could do, uh, that um, that I will take on as a favor to a particular individual, not because I think that the task itself is crucial maybe to be done at all, but certainly for me to do. I'm watching um, bureaucrats and administrators who absolutely live by this clock creating more and more deadlines that did not exist when I was uh, a young assistant professor. And I think that to be simply to be aware of these things uh, and to be aware of the importance of carving out time for reverie time for reading, time for pleasure, time just to sit and look out the window, time to lie in the grass with Dickinson uh, and watch the bees go by, um, is important to our human thriving. And uh, the more we fail to do that, the less thriving we have. Well, let's uh, head toward a break. Before we uh, go, there is another poem you'd uh, like to choose for right now. From the, um, from the book. Uh, by the way, we're talking with Catherine well, Coles, Sol for X is the title of the poetry collection. Let's do a Z poem. Uh, we've been talking okay. about bees. Um, so this is actually the last poem uh, in the book, and it's called Z, spelled with all Z's. She doesn't want to harm me, so she hums. She prefers living alone needing a single twig, just one hole. Like me, she likes browsing the desert where a breeze wafts her dry, where she dozes on sand and ephemerals astonish by the thousands, brilliant and willing when the brief rains wake them. Out here, a female can do it all on her own time and will, and goes on choosing sounding herself entire, one bare horizon to another. That's Z. I hope I pronounced that correctly, but <laughs> yeah. all Z's. That's the, the last uh, the, the last poem in, in the book. The, the poetry, let's uh, do go to a break now, and we'll come back with more. Catherine Coles is our guest. Uh, uh, she is author of uh, several volumes of poetry and uh, other books, and the latest is called Solve for X Poems. And uh, we'll have more following this break. Thanks for listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams. Catherine Coles is the author of two novels, eight collections of poems, the essay collection The Stranger I Become, and the memoir Look Both Ways. Uh, she is Distinguished Professor of English at University of Utah. She's out with a new uh, uh, collection of poems called Solve for X. And uh, she's our guest for the hour on the program uh, today. Um, so, Catherine Coles, I wonder if you could uh, read a, a couple of poems that are just right next to each other. Not Waiting. And then On Time. Yeah. Yeah. 
here we are, not waiting. There's no point sitting around, tomorrow being never a sure thing. Truth is, we were made for the future's perpetual reach, endless calculations. In which moment would you have me exercise patience? I'd rather put it off. (laughs) And on time. It matters only what time it is my ticker keeps, jolting me awake all night with its green strobe. Think of it as a pulsar pumping light. Think of it, if you do, as my all in all. I always say I'm eating my heart out. I've given up needing to know what else it means. I say it beats me. Hmm. Um, you know, this, I guess, this theme of time, right? Um Mm-hmm. You have a lot of poems about impermanence, right? And mortality as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, you, you reach an age, Tom. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, yeah. And, and, and I think that, it, so one's relationship, you know, if I'm, when I say one, I'm speaking of myself, of course, I may not be speaking of you. So I'll say my relationship with that uh, is complicated, right? I actually, and I hope it comes through in the book, I take a lot of pressure in the body and even in the aging body and in the idea of aging and in the process of aging. And yet aging is that thing that confronts us all the time with uh, our mortality, right? With the fact that there is a ticking clock for us, right? That it will end. And so we are always asked to think about what is the best use of our time, right? Mm-hmm. Is it amassing credit and money and awards? Is it love? Is it uh, cultivating an inner life, a dream life? What is it? Uh, and this seems to me to be the question that confronts one um, constantly as one uh, comes closer and closer. And, of course, we, we all know, or we should know, that um, the end could come at any second. But as we figure, well, if nothing unusual happens, right, here's where my likely end is based on genetics and lifestyle, right, and all of that kind of stuff. So um, as that ticking clock um, winds down... Uh, and we know that no amount of wire cutting, right, is going to is going to stop that clock. This urgency, um, and maybe this is the poetry emergency, right? The urgency of how am I going to spend that time that is always diminishing uh, becomes, I think, very very present. Is is it like that for you? Uh, yeah, yeah, certainly, <laughs> certainly is, <laughs> certainly yeah. is, yeah, and it you know it does change your perspective. I think, yeah. Yeah. Or, or, think, or sharpen your perspective. That's right. Yeah. And, uh, you know, for me, it really does increase my sense of pleasure in the fact that, um, that I'm a body for the time being, right? Um, in the fact that I have through my body and my senses and um, my neurological processes, et cetera, access to this incredibly beautiful world, Um and it reminds me, I think, to stop and 
just step outside and look from time to time. I wonder about beyond, talking about beyond death. We've referenced several poets. Um, uh, I don't know if you think about that, uh, a kind of immortality through your work. Um, I I actually think that uh, I can't afford to think about that. And I know that that poets have and that poets do. And, you know, we think especially about Keats, my, my very young creative writing, uh, my very young literature students in that How to Read a Poem class yesterday were talking about they had just discovered that Keats died at 25, that he wrote all these great poems. They, they were confronted with uh, this idea that, um, wow, he was not much older than we are. He was just about uh, our age. Um, and Keats, in the last two years of his life, um, when he was under such pressure because he was a medical doctor, he had tuberculosis, he had nursed his his brother Tom into the grave, he knew that he was dying and he had very little time, and he, uh, he was in a literal fever most of the time, but he was also in a fever of writing and a fever of composition. Um, and that's not something I think that can sustain you if you think you might live to 80 or 90, right, that that kind of pressure. And so I, and this might also be um, more a female approach than a male approach, but I actually think it's none of my business to think about what's going to happen after I'm dead. But my job is to create pleasure now and to hope that I write some poems that will time travel the way these other poems time travel, but to understand that I'm just as likely um you know, to fall into oblivion, more likely to fall into oblivion. And then if I'm really lucky, you know, maybe some graduate student will discover my papers in the University of Utah Library um, 50 or 100 years from now and think, oh, you know, there are a couple of things here. Uh, maybe I'll, I'll try to resuscitate some of this. Who knows? It's not my business. Um, I wonder, you said... Some of these poems, you take pleasure in the body, even the aging body. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there are, I'm sure there's some listening right now, um, readers, listeners to the poems who who perhaps, you know, live mostly in their minds. It's, uh, they're, they're, they're not so much uh, focusing on, on the body. What do yeah. you say to them? Um, I, I would say... Uh, I don't actually make a distinction between the mind and the body. And uh, I have a neuroscientist who supports me in this guy Claxton said, uh, actually on an NPR show that I was listening to, and I stopped and wrote it down immediately. He said, I am who I am because I am a body. And I think you can revise that a little bit and say, I am who I am because I am this body. And in fact, everything we know comes to us. Uh, through the senses, through our skin and our ears and our eyes, which um, construct, right, our mind and our awareness. They are our mind and our awareness. And so to pretend somehow that mind and body are different things, I think, is, is missing the point of the kinds of pleasures that our organisms uh, provide to us in the world. Um, I wonder if you'd read um, this, this poem, Stroke Truck Me, um, Multiple Exposure. 
Oh, sure. And then uh, I, I've had some fun reading the notes, and this one has interesting okay. note to it. I, <laughs> Um, do, and do you want me to read the note when I'm done? Uh, like, yes, make sure I have that'd, the, be, that'd I be... have the note available uh, to me? Okay, yeah, and should great. I read the note first uh, or last? Yeah, what, whatever you think. Um, I think I'm going to read it last. Okay. I, I really intentionally didn't put these notes up front in the poem. Uh, so let's experience the poem and then, and then read the note. But the clue to the note is in the title of the poem. I will say that. Multiple exposure. I am, then I am, can appear and can ghost, won't occur naturally, could be open and shut, be mistaken or have a high dynamic range. Sensitive or not, I may take on many positions at once, my shadow crushed, negative shining through, face blurred into. How many expressions should I keep? How many shots can I give you and do not have to shoot you? I wasn't always exposed or even present. Hmm. And um, then the note says some of the terms manipulated in this poem were taken from Wikipedia pages on exposure, auto bracketing, chrome key, and sandwich printing. And these, of course, are all photographic terms. And I'm, I am very interested in... Um, perception and in the lenses that we use to perceive the world and in how those lenses alter the way we see what we're looking at. Hmm. Uh, is there another poem you'd like to like to read? Um, how about, so another uh, theme in this book, um, and I'm actually glad that you didn't go first to this theme, so I'm going to thank you for that. But gender is also, you know, very much a theme in this book. And, you know, as as a woman, uh, I'm thinking about the body and about navigating the world uh, in a female body and the ways in which the ideas and perceptions of others about femininity um, are imposed uh, on a female body in a way that uh, they aren't imposed necessarily on a male body because the male body is the sort of neutral standard and everything else is, is different from that. Um, I'm always interested in the portrayal of female bodies in art, literature, etc. And this poem actually, it's called The Women with Flying Heads, was um, uh, written in response to uh, a series of Japanese prints that I saw um, at an exhibition in Paris in the Bramley Museum. Um, and uh, I was just fascinated with the ways in which across cultures, certain ideas about female unreliability uh, get portrayed in sometimes similar and sometimes very different ways. Uh, and this is called Women with Flying Heads. I know it's normal a woman shooting things off, especially the bits most prone to being not where you put them for keeping. Don't ask where's her head at and when did she lose it. Remember to watch for shrapnel and unexploded ordnance strewn round the garden. Also, her second most volatile part can go off in situ, no less frightening, but at least a man can keep it in hand. 
Maybe the the right questions are, why wouldn't heads roll under the circumstances? And how good would, would that feel? Women with Flying Heads from the collection Solve for X, the latest poetry collection from Catherine Coles. Let's take another break, uh, come back with our last segment with uh, Catherine Coles. We'll have that uh, following this brief break. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Catherine Coles is the author of two novels, eight collections of poems, an essay collection, and a memoir. And she is Distinguished Professor of English at University of Utah. Her latest poetry collection is called Solve for X. And we have her for another eight or nine minutes here in the, in the program. Um, I wondered, um, before we get to uh, another few uh, poems... I was curious about your dedications. T- tell me briefly about uh, Helen Mulder and uh, Catherine Bond Stockton. So I, I went through a period when I was, when this, we were coming up to the publication of this book, when um, my many of my former professors uh, were, were passing on, were dying. And um, I was honoring them in social media, um, you know, as precisely and as tenderly as I possibly could. And in fact, in the process of doing that, I also began honoring some professors who had died, you know, sometime earlier. Mark Strand was one. Larry Levis, uh, who died far too young um, some years ago, was another one. And I thought, you know, I, I should actually be letting my former teachers know how much they meant to me. Now, while they're still, you know, the ones who are still alive, I should be telling them uh, how how much they meant to me. And so this book is dedicated to two of them. Um, Helen Mulder was uh, one of my high school literature, literature teachers and probably in some ways the most important teacher I had in my formative years. Uh, she loved poetry. She um I was going to say required, she did require, but I felt more asked uh, by her to memorize poetry um, in, a, in a very concentrated kind of way. And in fact, I think memorizing Sailing to Byzantium, the Yeats poem with her is the one who really made me, that's the poem uh, that as I moved from being 14 or 15, memorizing it uh, to being... Um, uh, you know, a young poet in my 20s traveling, as I said, across Greece and, and Turkey with a backpack. Um, and then later in life, at 15, I was one of the young in one another's arms that begin the poem. Uh, and by the end, I'm the tattered coat upon the stick uh, that ends the poem. And then you uh, raise the question of literary immortality. Um, and the poem ends, once out of nature, I shall never take my bodily form from any natural thing. And that's in part of reference to the, po- the poem, right? And literary immortality. Um, she's the one who taught me this idea of time travel and how a poem grows with you and can be present with you at different times and places in, in your life. So the dedication to her is for Helen Mulder, my first poetry teacher, who taught me not to fear beauty 
Uh, and we've lived in an age uh, in which beauty is not necessarily the most valued thing. Uh, and I value beauty more and more the older that I get. And then for Catherine Bond Stockton, who was my last teacher when I was working on my PhD, and she does gender studies and queer theory at the University of Utah, and she is the one who first taught me really to love ambiguity and to embrace ambiguity in a in a very intentional kind of way. Yeah, that's wonderful. Uh, is there another poem you'd like to read? Um, I was looking a minute ago at um, a poem called No Reason, and let me get back to that. Um, and this is, uh, um, again, it, it invokes gender, but it also invokes time, mortality, uh, etc. And, you know, Tom, um, you and I have have known each other in this way, the way we're talking right now for quite a long time. And uh, I think of my poetry really as being about an engaging pleasure, uh, very much so. But another thing that really comes the longer you live is is grief, right? And um, grief becomes a constant companion, even alongside joy and alongside pleasure. Um, this is called No Reason. No reason beyond art turning another page, staying up late and unsupervised so far into maturity. Like all women, I'm told, I aspire to a certain stability and may have believed it would be supplied by heavy ballast, say, marble, though we've all been given the pedestal warning and taken heed. Taken head, I might rather say, and strong. Maybe an anchor would be better. Forgetting an anchor hooks by chain to something equally heavy, a battleship, a heart. Hmm. Yeah, no reason, no reason, yeah. I wonder, uh, we got about three or four minutes uh, left. Is there another poem you'd like to read? Uh, Yeah, this one made me think of, and talking about grief made me think of, uh, again, my father. Also, my really, uh, my friend, Herda Saunders, both my father died, um, I think maybe not of, but with dementia. Uh, And Herda Saunders, uh, who is my age, is um, advancing into dementia as well. And this is for both of them. The Known World. In my friend's mind, a pond or lake, too big to tell at night, stretches rocky beach to rushes. It lies under stars and moonlight, reflecting both, absorbing neither, and hides what it contains, which may be or not. My father's mind also brims over, sometimes smooth, sometimes ruffled, as does mine. Maybe something happens. Maybe it didn't. I can't say for sure the lake means memory or its loss, Herda's or my father's. Only it laps coolly at the dark. It ebbs and flows with light. The Known World. I wonder, this one really struck me. I wonder if you could read Postmortem. Sure. Yes. Interesting choice. Postmortem. The perfect posthumous brain slices elegantly, 
never falls apart, sleeps when it should, and holds on to what it knows. It shows signs of insanity or genius lobe by swollen lobe, not who it loved or anything material. So I am two legs, two eyes, one mind, and heart counting a one and a two, and at last won't be counted. Postmortem, yeah. Uh, well, we have uh, just a couple of minutes, so it may be time for a, just just another poem. Would you like to end on? Ah, uh, maybe I'll. We've been reading from the end of the book, um, so maybe I'll um, go back to the beginning. Um, maybe I'll go to the to the very beginning. Um, accuracy. If the sky is falling, hunt meteors or raise your umbrella. Keep your head down, take cover. This gets worse. In your nitpicky life, you only ever wanted mountains endless flaming, a yellow eye. <laughs> Accuracy, this very first uh, poem uh, in the book. Uh, the book is uh, Solve for X. Uh, it's the latest uh, poetry collection from Catherine Coles. So um, I, I assume probably you're you're writing poems right now. There'll be another volume coming at some point. Um, I I actually uh, have another poetry book coming out uh, next spring. I had when I went to put a book together, I realized that I I had um, poems for two very different books, um, and so. Uh, I assembled this one, and uh, then there will be another one that's mostly actually uh, poems about nutrient and climate in some ways that will be out a year from now. And uh, part of that backlog was really about all the prose writing that I was doing. And I tend to forget that I'm always writing poems um, with some part of my brain, and I kind of throw them into a file on the computer, or worst case, uh, which is the usual case, they're actually all over my computer in files, and then I have to go looking, <laughs> looking mm-hmm. for them. So while I was writing the, um, the, the memoir, which took me uh, almost 20 years, and then, and then the essays, I was also sort of steadily writing poems along the way, and when I went to look for them, I found um, more than I expected to find. And right now, I am uh, also writing poems in that same haphazard kind of way, but uh, I'm launching out a project with a, um, a wonderful illustrator um, that will be a poetry comic book, oh. um, like a, graph- a graphic poetry book um, that I'm very excited about, but that I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to do. And that's the thing about these longer projects is that I start them and I don't know how to do them. <laughs> so they take, they take some time. Well, we'll look forward to, uh, to all of those projects. The, the latest uh, collection is Solve for X uh, Poems. We've been talking with Catherine Coles. Thank you so much. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Always a pleasure for me, too. Thanks, everyone, for listening to Access Utah.